You are listening to the Conversations in Clean Energy podcast brought to you by nonprofit Sustainable Westchester, a consortium of Westchester County, New York member municipalities developing and implementing energy solutions that are socially, fiscally, and environmentally sound. This episode is produced in collaboration with NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. Host Radina Volova, the Regulatory Vice President at the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, and guests will explore a range of topics in the clean energy sector from policy and legislation to current marketplace solutions and the innovation driving the next generation of technologies, accelerating the transition to clean energy. Remember, the views or opinions expressed in this recording reflect those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of Sustainable Westchester or the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. This episode is brought to you by Green Faith. Is killing the planet against your religion? If so, join the Green Faith community this October for a global day of action. Learn more at www.greenfaith.org. The show starts now. Picture this. You're in Midtown. Manhattan, car horns honk and cyclists zoom by. People bustle between you and a hot dog cart. You see in front of you a nearly 150-year-old cathedral, St. Pat's. Now look down. Beneath the soles of your shoes, beneath the concrete, and deep under the subway lines is a system of geothermal wells that provides all the heating and cooling for this historic cathedral. And surprise, the geothermal wells were installed a mere four years ago. You realize that you aren't looking at just a historic landmark, but a 21st century building that will provide clean heating and cooling completely free from fossil fuels for many decades to come. St. Pat's is not the only 100-year-old building that has invested in clean heating and cooling. Just 17 miles north of St. Pat's in Pelham, New York, is another 100-plus-year-old building that installed ground-source heat pumps within the past decade. Here to share all about their geothermal retrofit experiences, welcome Eric and Jeff. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us. All right, so I think some of our listeners must be wondering, this was probably not an easy undertaking, given the historic nature of the buildings, their age, Was there an easier way to update their existing heating and cooling systems? Did you consider any other technologies? And ultimately, why did you choose geothermal as the way to go? What were the factors that led you to that decision? So, Rodina, yeah, we we wanted to explore uh, everything. I mean, the project got undertaken when, as a philosophy, the church that I I serve as the volunteer um, chair of the Buildings and Grounds, wanted to create an overall overarching sustainable program. And that meant obviously the building, but it meant other elements of the whole church program from stewardship to the music program to other elements. Um, But the biggest elephant in the room after we kind of took care of some of the lower hanging fruit uh, was the the mechanical system. And it was an oil-fired steam system um, entirely inefficient. It's 35,000 square feet of campus that we have. And we only had two central spaces, a library and a small chapel that had central air conditioning. So we only had uh, those rooms in the summer. And uh, we, we wanted to be uh, sustainable as both environmental stewards, but also sustainable on how we could uh, you know, save costs on utilities and also obviously lower our carbon footprint and get an oil tank off the property. So we, we did look at air-to-air heat pumps. We looked at 
uh, hydronic uh, systems, hybrid systems. Uh, but at the end of the day, the geothermal rang truest for, I think, the committee and the congregation to say, if we're going to invest a sizable amount of money, let's invest it the best way we can. And we felt geothermal was the way to do that. For Huguenot Memorial Church, it sounds like you were aware of the energy inefficiencies of the existing system. When you were looking at the other alternatives you just mentioned, air, heat pumps, hydronic systems, what led you to look at those in the first place as opposed to gas, for, for example? Well, the cost, the initial, the initial installation costs of those were expected to be less than the geothermal. That was going to be the most expensive system. And so in order to present it to a congregation, to, in order to evaluate it, in order to vet it, we wanted to make sure we had done our homework on the other systems that kind of bridge up, if you will, to the geothermal. Then at the end of the day, we chose the more expensive system, but felt the return was going to be far greater, both dollar-wise and also on an environmental stewardship basis. Jeffrey, how about you? I sort of envy you, Eric, because we, uh, we, we took a, a much more circuitous uh, path to our geothermal technology. We actually, uh, in 2008, had designed a conventional fan wall system, and it was a pretty invasive system. It would have had a fan wall facing uh, uh, Madison Avenue, where the Cardinal's residence is. And... Um, we had, in, we had talked about doing a geothermal plant, but our client um, was somewhat reluctant because it just, it really wasn't a technology that was proven out in, in Manhattan. Uh, General Theological Seminary and Union Theological Seminary both had systems. They hadn't been in place for a long time. And, and there were, um, you know, we just didn't feel like there was enough evidence uh, for how these institutions would interact with those systems. What happened was the, re- the great financial recession came in 2008 and actually put a stop to the project and delayed the project by a couple of years. And so by the time we got around to uh, thinking about installing the, the, the new HVAC systems within the building, uh, Rockefeller Center across the street had said, hey, you know, Rob Spire from Tishman Spire had offered, he's a, he's a St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, trustee. Uh, he said, why don't you use our excess air conditioning uh, and start chilled water from across the street? You just have to get it across the street. So we ended up uh, embarking on, a, on about a two-month analysis where we looked at uh, the conventional plant, the geothermal technology, and then pulling uh, air conditioning across the street from Rockefeller Center and using uh, existing steam. And when we looked at short-term costs and, and uh, long-term replacement costs, and, and then, of course, uh, you know, just the benefits of, of uh, geothermal technology, we went with geothermal. One of the things that made it a very viable system was the fact that St. Patrick's Cathedral is sitting on a big chunk of New York schist. And, um, you know, we were going to spend millions of dollars actually ex- excavating for a conventional plant. We realized that we could actually uh, stick the geothermal plant in their old uh, mechanical space and actually save some space and give them some more programming space as a result. So there were a lot of compelling reasons why geothermal technology worked in this, in this instance. And I would, I would also share with that uh, part of the reason to answer your earlier question, Rodino, is we, 
the ability to expand our programming because we didn't have you know air conditioning for all 35,000 square feet. So now we have, and we have a nursery school in the facility, we have a gymnastics program. And so now we have a 12 month a year spaces available for additional programming on a community basis and also additional potential you know, income from space use, which we didn't have before. I mean, it was a, a far less program year was, was, was less available. So that was really appealing to us. As you were considering the geothermal systems, you were not only taking into account typical considerations around cost and payoff and maybe environmental benefits, but also what that would mean for how the spaces are used and for the comfort of the occupants and kind of thinking in terms of um, the overall benefits to the community beyond just in energy impacts. Is, is that fair to say? It certainly is from our standpoint. And, um, you know, we have a, a, as a, as a small, much smaller church, obviously, than, than St. Pat, uh, Patrick's there, you know, uh, having a number of different size groups be able to use different size spaces. So from, I mean, one of the, one of the great benefits is, you know, each classroom has their own temperature control, each office, each space. And so in the wintertime, and we could actually dial those back when spaces aren't being used. So we get more efficiencies that way. And when they are being used, we can, you know, generate the cooling or heating we need for each of those. But on a room by room basis, other than, and even the large spaces, the sanctuary, the chapel um, are done individually. So it was a remarkable uh, controllability that we were able to overlay on the buildings. I think for us, um, the, it wasn't so much pro programmatic flexibility that the system gave us. You know, we, we were dealing with a historically significant building. And what was so amazing about the system and why it was such a, a useful application is that we could basically make HVAC go away. Um, we were able to use existing steam radiators for our new fan coil units. We were able to run, you know, a lot of things in the undercroft. There was a, a small uh, undercroft in a, in a crawl space. And, um, you know, the only evidence of the entire system on the outside of the building are uh, a couple of uh, small markers in, in, in some cases in the gardens or in the bluestone paving that indicate where a wellhead is. And so it was a perfect for, for a project where in New York City, the Landmarks Preservation Commission was very concerned about the impact of a new HVAC system on this building. They were delighted because there, there's virtually no visual impact at all. I'll also mention that um, there was one other thing that made this a, a very compelling system, too. At about uh, the same time that we were considering the three systems, Pope Francis came out with his encyclic, and, and in it he made a, made a strong uh, pitch for uh, environmental stewardship. And I think, Eric, in the same way that, you know, you maybe were able to start with sustainability on, on, the, on the table in your project from the very beginning, it sort of, we sort of worked our way into it in, in certain ways. And um, uh, I think, I think uh, the Pope's coming out with, with this declaration about sustainability and, and environmental stewardship uh, and our sort of picking the right system that complemented that sort of coincided at the same time. So it was a, a, a very happy coincidence. And it's interesting, I'd come back to your earlier point, Jeff, about um, you know, the timing of it. I think, because we did ours, we started our thinking about this in 2010, 
but for whatever reason, there was a, maybe the generational shift or whatnot, but there was a, a, there was a much more openness to the conversation around sustainability, even with many of our older congregants. They, they had to, I mean, we did, had kind of town hall meetings to kind of explain this major event that was going to happen. And uh, nearly without fail, we had great questions coming from people who were much more aware of what sustainability could be. They weren't quite sure how geothermal worked, which was fine, but that it was a desirable end product of this event and this effort. And I thought that was really terrific. I, was, I wouldn't say I'm totally surprised by it, but I, I, I was surprised to see how much support came from all generations. Yeah, I would say on our side, it wasn't necessarily an opposition to sustainability. It's, it's sort of how um, slowly the, the project evolved. And, you know, I think many people at St. Patrick's Cathedral thought that this was just really, a, you know, fix the stones and fix the roof and, you know, clean up the inside of the building project. But, you know, once we started getting into the systems, um, I think people real, realized that there were real the client realized that there were real uh, uh, operational and uh, and uh, energy savings potentials. Um, we we did some other measures like, um, you know, if you've ever been by St. Patrick's Cathedral, you know, six years ago on a day like this, they might have the front doors, those big bronze doors wide open because they wanted to welcome the public in. Well, all of the heat was flowing out of that building. And so we ended up installing these large glass uh, windows that, that prevented the heat, that contained the heat uh, in, in, the, in the winter and the air conditioning in the summer. So a number of other elements like that started getting everyone thinking, hey, we can really make a, a, a real dent in, in the energy use uh, we're using in this building. Before the conversation continues, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. There's a worldwide awakening underway to Earth's sacredness. Green Faith's multi-faith global grassroots community is where people go to connect, build skills, and go into action to protect the planet. The next global multi-faith day of climate action is this October, and people of diverse faiths will be rising for climate justice. Learn more and get involved at www.greenfaith.org. Welcome back to the conversation. I think we've talked a lot about the benefits and why you selected the systems. Were there any cons to going geothermal? Um, were there any major challenges during the installation process? Uh, from I could speak from, from our standpoint, which was that we avoided a con, which was we had a big parking lot to put 27 wells in, which I would wonder how Jeff's Jeff's geology and where they were strategic might have been a con if we were in a more condensed um, you know, location. I think you know, not necessarily a con, but you know, it took us about a year to kind of commission it fully and really use, figure out how to use it to the best performance. And I was expecting it would be a much less, much shorter commissioning period, but really had to getting through all the heating and cooling seasons to understand both our management capabilities and also the user expectations as we went through a, a complete year. So that wasn't necessarily, I would say, a con, but it was a, a shallow disappointment that we weren't able to turn information and utility around more quickly. It sounds like part of that, you said it, is user expectations. Is there uh, any sort of wisdom you can share from that experience and how others might plan and prepare for that? Well, I can tell you, I've 
stood up in front of the congregation to make one of the presentations. And the expectation around temperature is a, is a very interesting question. And so I asked everyone three questions. One, raise your hand if you're too warm. Okay, now raise your hand if you're just right. And now raise your hand if you're cold. And with each question, about a third of the congregation raised their hands. <laughs> so dealing with that expectation was to say, okay, we're going to be within these kind of temperature ranges. If you feel a little bit hotter or colder, there is a two-hour override in your space. So you can go over and still manipulate the temperature. And after two hours, it'll go back to what we've set it at. But that was very interesting to see that happen. I think the benefits of climate control and giving people greater ability to manage their comfort in a space seems like a recurring theme with, with heat pumps. And it sounds like making people aware of the differences in how they experience a space is important. And then giving them the tools to understand how to manage their comfort is a really important way to start off. And Jeff, how about you? We had a, um, a real challenge, I think, initially with basically drilling the wells. I mean, the wells were, uh, there were 10 of them along, uh, half along um, 52nd Street or, uh, and, and half along 53rd Street. And um, essentially, you know, we had, uh, I mentioned the New York schist. Well, when we got down to a certain distance, the wells all started going this way. And so all of our wells actually line up at the, at the property line where Olympia Towers is across the street. And um, we went to varying depths because we had to basically stop at the property lines of, of our neighbors. And um, we actually had to get a mining permit from the state of New York to do, to do that work and uh, a revocable consent from the city to actually go under underneath the sidewalks and the street. It was, you know, you can imagine in the heart of Manhattan, right across from, uh, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue and, and um, you know, Olympia Towers and you're on Fifth Avenue and you're across from Rockefeller Center, just a lot of eyes on your project. And, and the kind of drilling that we did was extremely messy. Um, you know, lots of water, lots of muck, um, and it was noisy. And, you know, we had people living in, you know, uh, luxury apartments across from the building who weren't very pleased with, you know, the, the, the drilling that was going. So, so, so our, our team, um, Structure Tone, was uh, managing the construction of the, of the system. And um, we, had, we worked with this really fine uh, well driller, Stadhoff, and they basically had to get in and get out as fast as they could before anyone got too crazy about um, the noise and the muck and the, and, the, and the water flying all over the place. And so, you know, I would just say in our case, that piece of it was a very tenuous time because we didn't know how bad it could be. It was pretty bad. It could have been a lot worse, um, but we were able to get that work done pretty quickly and, uh, and move on with the rest of the system. And what would you say was your greatest success factor in not getting into a worst case scenario? How, how did you avoid it getting as bad as it could be? In my case, it goes back to our team. I mean, we had an incredible client. We worked with uh, Zubac and owner representation. They were the owner's rep for the client and just had this incredible engineering team, LFG and PW Grocer and, you know, Lane 
Lane uh, did the installation of the plant. We just had the, the, this crew of people that were just operating at the top of their game. And, uh, you know, I think, I think one of the things that was so neat about working at, at uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral um, was that everyone brought kind of a, another, a different kind of attitude to the project. I mean, people felt the privilege of working on that building. And so, you know, if you didn't get people coming to St. Patrick's Cathedral and cutting corners, you got people coming with their A game. And so, you know, I think in all respects, whether it was restoring stone or woodwork or the organ or whatever it was, or, or the geothermal plant, you know, everyone, everyone was operating with their A game and, and that really made a, a huge difference. We've touched on this a little bit already in terms of timelines. Can you share a little bit more about how you managed user or building occupancy during the process for both of your projects? Well, ours was prescribed by the school year um, because we had a nursery school that uh, could not be shut down for a year. So we had to do a fair amount of pre-construction work to get ready to go. And we had literally a window from the third week in May to uh, right after Labor Day to get the work done as far as anything that would interact with the school or the gymnastics program. And, um, and then we, we carried on into the end of October with some additional installations in the rest of the church that didn't impact it. But we had to have heat on date by October 15th and, or the school couldn't function. And that was just the reality that we had to work. So Hennington Engineering, who did the work for us, um, who I've worked with for many years doing geothermal on homes, and they're used to working with me to, to get systems through a house in as at least obtrusive way as possible, and certainly in an historic building, not nearly as historic as St. Patrick's, but nonetheless a 100-year-old building. And our contractor, DJH, who this was their first big project like this. So we rolled the dice a little bit with them, but they put everything in the, into it, and it became really a a great star on their on their shelf uh, moving forward. Sounds like the importance of a great team is a recurring theme here. It is, but I would say, you know, you hit, you, it's a great question that, if, you know, managing expectations is probably both Jeff and I do every day with any number of clients, but certainly when you get into the public clients and those who have donated money, it's not a business. I mean, this is a choice of theirs to donate money we, you know, we maintain ongoing communications with the, through written form, through open meetings, through presentations to make sure we were communicating. Um, and our, our committee, who we, we, it, we, our committee drew from some people in the financial world, a, a strategic planner from Deloitte. You know, we had some really good people that kind of think that through. And that paid, uh, paid benefits, you know, as we went forward. People felt, oh, I understand this. I get it. It's going great. Just talking about sort of the, the logistics, we, you know, St. Patrick's Cathedral has over 5 million visitors every year. And uh, early on, the trustees of St. Patrick's Cathedral um, determined that there was no way we we're going to shut this building down to um, do a construction project. And so the building remained open the entire uh, five years that, that that construction went on. And, um, and, it was uh, it was remarkable because they you know they had they had mass masses throughout the day, but um, particularly at, at noon, we you know they would do it during uh, dur during uh, lunch hour. But there were services also where you know you can if you hear a recording of the 
of the service, you can hear guys banging on the scaffolding and running saws and, and they just kind of, you know, took it in stride. And it was really impressive to see. There's a, there's a really lovely uh, midnight mass uh, image that I, that I took when, uh, one Christmas where uh, the choir, the head of the choir and the choir are sort of seen through all the scaffolding. And, uh, you know, there was in the beginning, there was a, a bit of trepidation, I think, on part of the client, you know, will, will our congregants, um, you know, oppose being surrounded by construction. And I think what we found was that people were just delighted by it. And they, they found it so interesting to be, you know, invited into a building where things were going on. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's much more common to see that maybe in Europe where, you know, cathedrals and big churches are under construction constantly. But, you know, I think there was a real sensitivity to, um, you know, especially congregants that, hey, you know, this, this could be really intrusive, but, but everyone just sort of accepted what was happening and, uh, and it worked out well. And, and of course, we had, you know, Structure Tone and Zbeck and did an, a masterful job in just sort of choreographing how the work would happen in this big, voluminous space, you know, but, but it was such a big space that you could really isolate uh, parts of the work. And uh, that seemed to work out fine for us. Now that the projects are done and you have experience at your back with how the systems are running and how they're being used, can you tell us a little bit more about the benefits both to the building owners and the occupants, community members from their perspective and perhaps also from a financial perspective? Um, is do the way the systems are operating match what the community expected? And what is the financial payoff? Well, I could, I could offer that um, there's a couple of questions embedded in there, so I could peel off a few of those. I would say one of the things was the kind of opportunistic um, elements that kind of occurred as we started to think about the benefits. And um, as I mentioned earlier, this was kind of a part of an overall sustainable Huguenot program. And We'd had a, an organ that has, was 60 years old and, and needed replacement, but you know, since we didn't really have a conditioned space, people were not that anxious to invest in, and organs are not inexpensive. So we could offer now, um, um, it's not a perfectly conditioned, I mean, it's a big sanctuary, it's a big space, but we could offer a far better conditioned space to think about investing a major amount of money in replacing the organ. And, and two years later, we raised through another capital campaign enough to replace the organ. And so our music program went from a very solid one to I think really an exceptional one that the community benefits from. Certainly our congregation and our, our music director and her choir all benefit from. Um, I would say we maybe knew that might be out there for us to grasp, but until we could really prove that this was working, it wasn't as tangible and real as it, as it was able to become. And that was just one of many, I think, benefits that we, we uh, found ourselves being able to take advantage of. And would you say that the benefit you're describing goes back to the question of occupant comfort, how comfortable people are in the space and how it's used? Um, actually, no, it's more about how comfortable the organ is. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's being able to keep an organ at um, a reasonable temperature and humidity without dramatic shifts and spikes 
where it's uh, much of it's wood and, and it's wood or metal, but both of which expand at different rates and, you know, uh, seals start to get broken or, you know, you lose the performance of the, of the organ. So being able to, even if we, like in the winter, we keep it fairly chilly in there and that's fine. I mean, um, and we bring the temperature up slowly, which we can now do, um, which we couldn't do before. So it's being able to kind of control that environment and bring it up or down as you choose to the benefit of the instrument. That's incredible. I, I would not have thought that geothermal would have benefits for something like a musical or organ. That's wonderful to hear. And Jeff, how about you? Well, you know, I can't speak for my, my client, but, you know, I think the system is operating as was advertised. And, and um, you know, I think, I think the, the visitor experience was very uh, important to them and making sure that the, that the beauty of the architecture shines through and not, and not a brand, brand new HVAC system. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, um, having so little impact, I mean, we were charged, one of, one of the, the charges we were given by the trustees was, you know, we, we had to be extremely deferential to the architecture of the cathedral and, and the, system, the system enabled um, us to do that. But um, picking up on uh, what or, uh, Eric said about the organ, uh, St. Patrick's has three, essentially three different organs. It's about 8,000 pipes. And we actually removed all of them, all of those pipes uh, to be, uh, to, to, to be cleaned and kept off site while we, while we did the work, but we put it, we ended up putting it back. But what's, what's really cool about the uh, geothermal system is it, it heat, in particular, it heats at a much lower temperature. And so, you know, before we were getting these, these big swings in the building where the steam would come on a cold day like this, the, the steam would come on, you know, for a certain amount of time and then go off. And so you have these swings that, that existed and, and which is just like the kiss of death for, for an organ. And so in some ways, you know, people, people actually had to get used to touching the fan call units and it not feeling, not burning their hands. They, they, they were thinking, you know, people would think, gosh, how could this be heating this big building if it's not, you know, 200 degrees, but, um, you know, so it's a much lower temperature. And as a result, you, you know, it's, it's, I think the comfort level for, in, for people is, is much better. You're not getting so hot or so, so cold when the, when the steam is cycling, cycling uh, down. And then for, for, for things like woodwork and for the organ and other elements with, you know, decorative elements within, you know, we have these, these beautiful chapels uh, on, on, on the side aisles that all have amazing artwork in them. And so, um, you know, this sort of idea of a stable um, environment um, is really important. And it's, you know, it'll really just help with the longevity of all of those elements within, within the cathedral. Would you say that given your experiences and the challenges that you face there and being able to achieve the installations and have them run successfully, that someone could look at your projects and say, if they can do it, I can do it? Well, I think, I think so for, for sure, a much smaller church facility or even any other type of a, and, and you'd think of a mass stone building and how do I get, you know, uh, heating systems through there, but, um, you know, being clever about how you, the undercroft space or some of the other areas where you're able to hide piping and whatnot, that you can kind of distribute, which is the kind of second phase. I mean, geothermal is creating energy. It's how you're getting it to the rooms that 
really, you know, could work or not work for many spaces. But I think the other component of it for us, at least, was how do you contain that energy once you've created it? And so can you get in and do insulation in some areas or can you do very attractive internal or external storm panels on your windows, particularly stained glass, for instance, you're using a lot of both thermal loss, but also air infiltration, the old leaky church feeling, right? So we were able to accomplish not only the system, but also the containment of the system by dealing with the whole shell at the same time. So I would encourage anyone who said, yeah, you could do it anywhere, but to make sure you're looking at not just your energy source, but the, the way you're going to distribute it and the way you're going to contain it. Yeah, I, I sort of take, a, I guess, a similar approach as Eric. I, I don't... I wouldn't say that geothermal technology is necessarily right for every project. I mean, I, I, I think um, we were talking earlier about uh, passive house. I think, you know, heavily insulating walls and ceilings uh, and roofs, uh, you know, putting really good windows that have uh, great thermal performance, um, all of those things that are low hanging fruit to minimize your energy use are, are, are really the first go to's if you can. You know, the one thing about St. Patrick's Cathedral is that it's a very big institution and, you know, this church is going to be here for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and so, you know, there's a real, um, there's a real, I would say, justification for, for going the, the extra distance to do a system that's as complex as what we have at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And they, and they have they have the ability to take care of this system. So I think that's that's also a part of it. I mean, Eric Eric um, clearly knows a lot, and it sounds like you have capable people in your congregation, and I think that really helps a lot. But you know, for uh, you know, small sometimes it, it maybe in the city for smaller institutions, it may not be right. It may be too much of a lift to take care of that system. Well, that segues really nicely into our last question. If there was one lesson, major lesson that you wanted to share with others who may be considering geothermal systems, what would it be? Under promise and over deliver. <laughs> um, you know, don't, don't set too high of a bar uh, and try to build up your performance to, to an expectation to, and to exceed it. It's not the panacea. And I think Jeff's right. It not, it's not for everyone. Um, and there's also other intangibles that are tough to put when people want to put dollars and cents on the whole maintenance of an old steam system versus having all the equipment inside. There's no exterior degradation to, you know, uh, outdoor equipment or things. You, it's tough to put dollars and cents on, but they obviously make sense. You know, you're going to save money if you do this. So I would, I would, I would offer those as maybe some some points to think about. Yeah, um, I, I totally, totally agree with Eric. It's easy, you know. It's easy to fall in love with geothermal technology. There's so, you know, especially for, for designers like us, you know, there's so much to like about it, right? But, um, you know, making sure it's the, the right application is critical. I, mean, I would say one thing that, that our, our engineers, uh, LFG, Landmarks Facilities Group, just did brilliantly was they helped us plan for redundancy. So we actually have... In our, in our geothermal plant, we've got the 10 wells coming in and, and 10 heat exchangers and a larger heat exchanger. Um, but we have redundancy. So we, we can operate four wells at a time if, 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 uh, and, and circulate you know, using them at different times 
And, and if we need to service a well or service a, a heat exchanger, we can, we can do that. And, and it's not going to, uh, it's not going to impact the performance. Similarly, we have a, we have a chiller that's dedicated just for the, the hot months so that when August comes around September, if there's a, you know, 4,000 person, uh, funeral in uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in the third week of August, and, in, and we're not generating enough cooling, we can actually cool the wells themselves using our chiller. So that's, that's a redundant system. We also, have, we also have the same on the heat side. We also have some uh, uh, gas-fired uh, boilers that can do the same. They can, they can inject heat into the wells to help with the heating. So I think that, and, and interestingly, we've never had to use either of those. So, you know, so the system is performing, but we still have that redundancy to you know, address those, those critical times. And so I think really, really thinking hard about how you give yourself uh, uh, redundancy and how you design a system that you can service easily and things like that uh, is crit critical. And, you know, again, that, that goes back to working with the right team who had the experience to sort of know better to do that. Oh, that's a lot of wisdom packed in both of your responses. From what I'm hearing, it sounds like it's very important to set expectations early on, do education around the systems, and consider the other intangibles to, to the system and how it fits within the overall community and building and to plan for redundancies and have a great team. You've been listening to Sustainable Westchester's Conversations in Clean Energy, sponsored by GreenFaith. Learn more at www.greenfaith.org. Please remember that the views or opinions expressed in this recording reflect those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of our sponsors, Sustainable Westchester, or the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. Nonprofit Sustainable Westchester offers a robust portfolio of clean energy solutions for municipalities, property developers, businesses, and residents. If you're a building owner, operator, architect, engineer, or professional who would like to explore implementing the 21st century heating and cooling technologies featured on today's episode, reach out to us. We will help you navigate available resources, including technical assistance, financing, and rebates. Today's episode was produced by Sustainable Westchester's Commercial Clean Heating and Cooling Team. Program Director Rachel Carpatella and Project Manager Harleen Srivastava with marketing and promotional support from Maria Genovesi and technical production from the Sound Media Group. This episode was produced in collaboration with NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. Stay tuned for another episode real soon. <laughs>